If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. This morning, we continue our Distinguished Pulpit series, a time for us to hear from a variety of spiritual, theological, and community perspectives. Today, we're honored and happy to welcome to the Mayflower Pulpit, Michael Kornblit. Michael is the co-founder of the Respect Diversity Foundation, RDF, a nonprofit tax-exempt organization founded to teach respect, tolerance, and acceptance for all people. Since its founding in 2001, RDF has worked with over 385,000 students, teachers, and adults. Michael's also the co-author of the best-selling book, Until We Meet Again, the true story of love and survival in the Holocaust. Please join me in giving Michael a warm Mayflower welcome. Let us bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Holy One, the proverb assures us that wisdom cries out in the street, in the square she raises her voice, and at the busiest corner she cries out at the entrance of the city gates. She speaks, but we're having a hard time hearing her. Is it possible that she took a smoke break? Maybe she just ducked into a coffee shop for a caffeine pick-me-up, and we really hope that that's what it is. Otherwise, we might be in trouble. We're worried that we're already living into the warnings that fill the rest of the proverb, the part about being laughed at in calamity because we've ignored counsel and chosen ignorance over knowledge. We're concerned about having to eat the fruit of our labor, or rather the fruit of being anti-labor. Having chosen partisan tribalism, we're battered by the whirlwind of fake news and spin. And we can hardly be honest with ourselves these days, much less own up to our mistakes to someone else. The author of the proverb seemed to know, just as we do, the bitter taste of panic that's in the back of our throat. Is it too late to stop the glaciers from melting and the sea from rising? Is it too late to to reprioritize? Is it too late to stop the widening economic gap or the education gap, or is it too late to apologize to recover the friendship? Is it too late for our hardened hearts to soften? Is it too late? But if the author of the proverb came out on the other side to write about it, perhaps it's not too late for us either. So give us ears to hear, Holy One, as wisdom cries out to us, yes, 
in the street, in the square, the city gates, but also in the classrooms and at the border, from those who are strangers to us and especially from our own hearts. Speak wisdom, for we're listening. In the name of Jesus, our teacher and organizer, we pray, amen. Good morning, everyone. First, I'd like to thank Melissa for welcoming me here today and also to Reverend Walkie uh, for trusting me with her congregation. When I was six years old, I was sitting in the living room with my parents in Ponca City, Oklahoma. And it was the first time that I noticed something on my parents' wrist, a K and an L in blue ink. And on the inside of my mother's forearm was the letter A, followed by the number 27327. Being the inquisitive little people we are at that age, I asked my parents what those were. And they tried to explain to me in the least horrifying and the simplest of terms that they were both survivors of the Holocaust. I am not going to focus on the horrors of the Holocaust today, but instead on something many of you may not be aware of. I am standing here today because of five Polish Christians, Franjak and Henrik Gorski, John and Janik Salki, who was only 13 years old at the time, and Josef Wisniewski, who were willing to not only risk, but three of them gave their lives to save my parents. They hid my parents out during the deportations of the Jews from their hometown, who were immediately sent to the Belzic extermination camp. The three Christians who helped my parents were murdered by the Nazis for helping Jews. I took my parents back to Poland and Germany in 1981 to do research on a book I was writing about their experiences in the Holocaust. During the trip, we found Henrik Gorski, the son of Franjak Gorski, who hid my parents out. I had a thousand questions to ask him, but I really only needed an answer to one. Why? Why would your father risk his life and his family's to save my parents? He gave a very simple answer, because he knew it was the right thing to do. This will be my focus today, standing up when you know it is the right thing to do, even when it means it could cost you your job or even your life. During World War II, the country of Bulgaria was allied with Nazi Germany. They were a very anti-Semitic country. They had their own anti-Semitic laws. 48,000 Jews lived in the country of Albania, I mean uh, Bulgaria. But they knew it was only a matter of time before they would probably be deported because of what was going on in the rest of Europe. And the word finally came down that the Jews were going to start being deported. But Dimitar Peshev, deputy speaker of the parliament, along with 46 other legislators, sent a letter to the president and said, no, we are not going to allow that to happen. There was a debate that took place, and they lost. They were removed from office and from their jobs. And the order did come down that the Jews of Bulgaria would be deported. But something that the president and the rest of the government did not count on 
were the Bulgarian people. They rose up and they said, no, we are not going to allow our Jewish Bulgarian citizens to be deported. And because of that, 48,000 Jews of Bulgaria were saved from dying in the Holocaust. They stood up because they knew it was the right thing to do. During World War II, Albania was the only predominantly Muslim country in Europe. With a population of 807,000, about 75% of the population were Muslim, about 24.999% were Christians, and about 0.001 were Jews. 200 Jews lived in Albania. Albania was first occupied by the Italian fascist. And the government saw what was happening to Jews in the rest of Europe and feared for their own Jewish citizens. So they immediately started giving the Jewish population false identity papers, giving them new names, Christian or Muslim names, so that when they were stopped, they would not have a Jewish name. Eventually, the Italians moved out and the Nazis moved in. Eventually, some 2,000 refugees, refugees who escaped from Germany, from areas of Yugoslavia, from Greece, from Romania, escaped into Albania. What did the Albanians do? They took them in. They hid them out. They gave them false identity papers, making them Albanians. They protected those refugees. Only one Jewish family was discovered and murdered by the Nazis. Why did they do it? Because of a word. That word is Bessa. Bessa is a code of honor. Bessa is something that all Albanians attest to. Bessa literally means to keep the promise. Someone who, to whom one can trust one's own life and the lives of his family. They will give up their own family member before they would turn in the stranger. The Albanians competed with each other for the privilege of saving Jews in their country. Albania was the only Nazi-occupied country in Europe who had more Jews after the war than they had before the war. They stood up because they knew it was the right thing to do. During World War II, the country of Morocco had the largest Jewish population of any Muslim country. 250,000 Jews lived in Morocco. And for centuries, Jews and Arab Muslims got along very well. The Nazis ordered the Vichy government who controlled Morocco 
to produce the names of all the Jews living in Morocco so they could start the process where they would be deported to the camps. King Mohammed V was, was said to have responded, there are no Jewish citizens, there are no Muslim citizens, only Moroccan citizens. No Moroccan official cooperated, no list was handed over, and no Jews were sent to the concentration camps. They stood up because they knew it was the right thing to do. It's a middle school in Paris, France, during World War II, called Ecole Rue Michel Bizot. After a number of months after the Nazis had occupied Paris and France, they ordered that all Jewish students in public school in Paris were to start wearing the Star of David so that they would know who the Jews were. So the principal called in the Jewish students of that school and told them tomorrow when they come, they would be wearing, needing to wear that star. When they arrived at school the next day, they walked into the building and saw all the other students wearing a star of David. These were 13 and 14 year old kids. They knew what the consequences might be for them because of the action they took. They stood up because they knew it was the right thing to do. On a cold winter night in 1940, a single Jewish woman showed up at the house of Pastor Andre and Magda Trockney, asking them for help in fleeing the Nazis. The place she came to was the Protestant village of La Chambon sur Lyon in southern France, with a population of 5,000 people under the control of the Vichy government. That would be the start of a rescue effort that would end up saving over 5,000 refugees fleeing the Nazis between 1940 and 1944. Of those 5,000 refugees who escaped to the village, 3,500 of them were children. The entire population of the village would end up participating as well as the surrounding small villages in the area. Some 24,000 people were involved. They kept the secret for four years. To this day, La Chambon is known as the village that committed good. The values of the village were best expressed by Pastor Trockmay, who concluded his sermons with the words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now go practice it. They stood up because they knew it was the right thing to do. The country of Israel created Yad Vashem, the National Holocaust Museum in Israel in 1953 to remember the six million Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust. In 1963, they created an award for those non-Jews 
who had risked their lives to save Jews. The award is called Righteous Among Nations. Since 1963, only 27,712 people from 51 countries have been given the award. Only five Americans have received the award. The last American to receive the award was Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds of Knoxville, Tennessee. Captured at the Battle of the Bulge at the end of 1944, he was sent to Stalock 9A, a prisoner of war camp in Germany. As the ranking non-commissioned, highest ranking non-commissioned officer, he was in charge of the 1,275 American POWs. On the first day, the Nazi commandant ordered Edmonds to have only the Jewish POWs report outside the barracks the next morning. The next morning, all 1,275 American POWs were standing outside of their barracks. The Nazi commandant was outraged, ran up to Edmonds, and again ordered him to identify the Jews and put a gun to his head. I want the Jews to which Edmonds responded, we are all Jews. If you kill one of us, you will be charged with war crimes after the war is over. The Commandant backed down. Roddy Edmonds was responsible for saving between 200 and 300 Jewish American soldiers from being murdered. Master Sergeant Rodney Edmonds passed away in 1985, and the Righteous Among Nations was awarded to him posthumously in 2015. He stood up because he knew it was the right thing to do. In 1964, was designated at Freedom Summer in Mississippi by a number of civil rights organizations. The purpose was to register as many blacks as possible to vote. Many whites from the North came down to Mississippi to help. Andrew Goodman, the young Jewish man from New York City, traveled to Mississippi to join the Freedom Summer Project. His first day there was June 21st, where he joined with another young Jewish man from New York City named Michael Schwarmer and a young black community organizer named James Cheney. On that same day, June 21st, the three of them set out from Philadelphia, Mississippi to visit a black community whose church had been burned to the ground by the Ku Klux Klan. On the way back, they were arrested for supposedly speeding. They were taken to the Philadelphia jail and after a few hours were released, and they left. They were followed out of town by members of the Ku Klux Klan and were never seen alive again. The search for them went on for weeks. After two months, they got a tip about where the bodies were buried, and they were finally recovered. They had been shot at close range and murdered. 
Members of the Ku Klux Klan, the Sheriff's Department, and the Police Department were charged with the crime. Most of them, found guilty, received light sentences. The country was so outraged at what they saw and heard that it gained support for the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Those three young men gave their lives to help others gain their freedom and constitutional rights. They stood up because they knew it was the right thing to do. The first attempt to march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama resulted in what became known as Bloody Sunday. In March of 1965, a young white mother of five heeded Martin Luther King Jr.'s call and traveled from Detroit, Michigan to Selma, Alabama. Her name was Viola Louisa. She participated in the successful march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama for voting rights. She helped with coordination and logistics for the march. While driving people back and forth from Montgomery to Selma, Alabama, on March 25th, she was murdered by members of the Ku Klux Klan. It was said that the murder of Viola and the murders of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwarmer, who also worked on voting rights for blacks, helped stir the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in August of that year. She also gave her life to help others gain their freedom and constitutional rights. She stood up because she knew it was the right thing to do. On August 11th and 12th of 2017, far-right groups came together in Charlottesville, Virginia to participate at a rally. They included the alt-right, neoconservatives, neo-fascists, white nationalists, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, Klansmen, and right-wing militias. On the evening of August 11th, they marched down the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia, carrying tiki torches and chanting, Jews will not replace us, Jews will not replace us, reminiscent of the marches done by the Nazis at Nuremberg, Germany. The following day, there were clashes with counter-protesters who did not want them there in their city. A self-identified white supremacist deliberately rammed his car into the counter-demonstration, injuring 19 and murdering Heather Heyer. She gave her life for something she believed in. She stood up because she knew it was the right thing to do. Let me be perfectly clear. There were not fine people on both sides in Charlottesville, Virginia on that day, as our former president said after and continues to say today. Cheney, Goodman, Schwarmer, and Viola gave their lives to secure voting rights for all people. The people who murdered those four civil rights workers, the Ku Klux Klan, were in Charlottesville 
the Ku Klux Klan who murdered those four civil rights workers, were at the Capitol on January the 6th, 2001, trying to deny the legitimate election of the President of the United States. To the Supreme Court, Arizona, Georgia, Oklahoma, and all the other states trying to disenfranchise people from voting, especially people of color, the young and the elderly, they should know we are not going to lie down without a fight, a fight that will continue until the right to vote for all people is secure. Too many people have given their lives for that right. We will stand up because it is the right thing to do. A very good survivor friend of mine who just passed away recently, whenever he spoke to groups, he had two sentences that he ended with. The first one was, hate is never right and love is never wrong. And the second one was, he said it was the 11th commandment. Thou shall not be a bystander. I will end with a quote from Holocaust survivor and Nobel Peace Prize winner, Elliot Wiesel, when he said, we must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Sometimes we must interfere. When human lives are endangered, when human dignity is in jeopardy, national boundaries and sensitivities become irrelevant. Whenever men or women are persecuted because of their race, their religion, or their political view, that place must at that moment, become the center of the universe. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are currently online only, premiering at 11 a.m. on Mayflower's Facebook page. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.